you so much for joining us today. We're going to go ahead and get started here. I am Jen Mascott, professor at Scalia Law School of the George Mason University and co-director of the Seaboyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, which was founded by Naomi Rao, now a judge on the D.C. Circuit, formerly a professor at Scalia Law School, and it's still co-directed by uh, Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute. And we are thrilled today to be hosting what I think is a very important discussion on religious liberty and how actions in the public square, in government, and in the courts intersect with issues under the First Amendment of free exercise and religious freedom. And the Gray Center, next thing coming down the pike late late May or early June. We'll let everybody know about a public policy conference we are planning for Capitol Hill. And with that, I want to turn things over to my co-host, Ed, who is just a fantastic former public servant, current thought leader here in Washington, D.C. He is the Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and was recently named the Antonin Scalia Chair in Constitutional Studies, which is very apt as a former law clerk to Justice Scalia and also editor of three volumes of Justice Scalia's work, including the New York Times bestselling collection of Justice Scalia's speeches, also former senior official in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice during the George W. Bush administration, and a former general counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So Ed is going to continue the welcome and call up our first panel, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks very much, Jen. What a pleasure it is to co-host this event with the Gray Center. Uh, For those of you not familiar with the Ethics and Public Policy Center, let me mention that we are a think tank uh, dedicated to defending American ideals and the Judeo-Christian moral tradition that underlies those ideals. Uh, I was president of the institution for some 17 years until a, a year ago when I handed the reins to my incredibly talented successor, Ryan Anderson, we have scholars uh, uh, working in a broad range of areas, uh, including uh, religious liberty, which is obviously a, a founda- foundational matter. With that said, let me uh, invite the panelists on the first panel uh, up here, please, and I will um, uh, soon introduce our, our moderator. We are very grateful to have as our moderator of this first panel, the Honorable Trevor McFadden. Since 2017, Judge McFadden has served as a district judge on the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, where, incidentally, he has, of course, uh, or was a a colleague of Ketanji Brown-Jackson's for for four years until she became a D.C. Circuit Judge. Before going on the bench, he was an assistant U.S. attorney in D.C., a partner with the Baker and McKenzie Law Firm, and a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Criminal Division at the Justice Department. Thanks, Ed. It's uh, great to be with you all. Um, really uh, appreciate the EPPC and the Gray Center for hosting this panel. Um, we're going to be talking about religious liberty, government regulation, and the public square. I think this topic has probably never been more relevant than um, uh, now and and thinking, kind of taking stock of what's happened in the last few years. I, I think it's it's fair to say that we've seen regulations and impositions on religious liberty that even five years ago would have been unthinkable. Um, one example that came before me back in 2020 was uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, a local church, um, filed suit in my court. Um, uh, just wanting to be able to have outdoor, socially distanced, masked uh, worship. 
And even that they were not allowed to do under the then um, D.C. regulations. Um, this is despite the fact that at the same time uh, there were numerous protests in D.C. with thousands of protesters who were certainly not socially distanced nor masked and, and were in many ways there at the, with the encouragement of the local authorities, but yet um, these houses of worship were not allowed to gather at all. Um, that's the type of situation that I'm talking about. That's, uh, we found ourselves just in unprecedented waters. Um, today, we have a terrific panel um, to help us think through some of these changes and, and the implications. Uh, I'll introduce the panelists in the order in which they're going to speak. They'll take about five minutes each to give an opening statement, and then we'll have a uh, discussion among the, uh, amongst the panelists. First up is Roger Severino. Um, he's the vice president of domestic policy at the Heritage Foundation. Um, he also is at the Ethics and Public Policy Center as a senior fellow. Um, he's uh, dual-hatted. Um, at the Heritage Foundation, he's a national authority on civil rights, um, conscience and religious freedom, the administrative state, and information privacy. Um, before and at EPPC, he uh, created the HHS Accountability Project. Before joining these um, uh, think tanks, he was the director of HHS's Office of Civil Rights, where he led a team of over 250 staffers enforcing our nation's civil rights, conscience, and religious freedom, and health information privacy laws. Prior to joining HHS, uh, Mr. Severino served for two years as director of the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at Heritage, advocating for life, family, and religious freedom policies. Before that, he was a trial attorney for seven years at the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. Uh, Mr. Severino holds a JD from Harvard Law School, a master's degree in public policy with highest distinction from Carnegie Mellon University, and a bachelor's degree from the University of Southern California. He also was appointed by President Trump to the Administrative Conference of the United States. To his right is uh, Andrea Lucas. Uh, the Honorable uh, Andrea Lucas was confirmed by the U.S. Senate on September 22, 2020, to be a commissioner on the U.S. Equal uh, Employment Opportunity Commission. Uh, before her appointment to the EEOC, uh, Commissioner Lucas was a member of the Labor and Employment and Litigation Practice Groups at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher here in Washington, D.C., while at Gibson Dunn, she represented and advised employees, our employers and boards of directors on a wide variety of employment-related issues. Uh, Commissioner Lucas received her BA magna cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania and her JD from my very own University of Virginia. Uh, earlier in her career, she clerked in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. And at the far end is Matt Bowman. He serves as a senior counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom, where he focuses on the impact of administrative law on religious freedom, the sanctity of life, and family. From 2017 to 2020, Mr. Bowman was uh, in the senior executive service uh, as a, an appointee in the Trump administration, serving as the Health and Human Services uh, Deputy General Counsel, uh, and then in the Office of Civil Rights. Prior to joining HHS, Mr. Bowman was an accomplished litigator at ADF for over 10 years, 
Um, among various cases he handled, he filed and argued NIFLA versus Becerra in the lower federal courts, um, a case where the Supreme Court ultimately protected the free speech of pro-life pregnancy centers. He served as a law clerk to uh, Judge Sam Alito on the Third Circuit and Judge uh, um, John Roll on the U.S. District Court for the District of Arizona. He earned his J.D. summa cum laude and was first in his class from Ave Maria School of Law in 2003. With that, let me turn it over to Mr. Severino. <clears throat> Thank you, Judge. I was thinking, how would I open up with the question, what is the biggest threat to religious liberty, and where is it coming from? What do they look like? It's people with white coats, with fancy degrees, that don't have to raise their voices. I think that is where the biggest threat to religious liberty is coming from. Think about what happened with the aftermath of COVID and the shutdowns, where houses of worship were literally forced to stop the religious exercise. All of it. All of it. That has never happened in the history of this country before. Even in World War II, the churches were open. Even in the Civil War, the churches remained open. But it was people in white coats who ordered that. Congress didn't pass a law saying that we're going to close down houses of worship. It was done by an executive order, and then governors who gave it the force of law. And it was sad to see because I was one of those people that was subjected to the restrictions on outdoor worship, and I engaged in civil disobedience. I took my family to church. We never missed mass in Virginia. And I wanted to show that there are some things worth taking a reasonable risk for, being outdoors and worshiping God. And you are to give, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but render unto God what is God's, and the church is God's, not Caesar's. I didn't get arrested. It would have, uh, you know, made headlines because I was in the Trump administration, head of the Office for Civil Rights and in charge of religious freedom issues there. But not enough people were willing to stand up and do that, to take that sort of risk. The people who were doing the Black Lives Matter protests took that risk. And they really believed what they were uh, standing up for. And the government backed off and let them do it because they took it seriously enough. Some brave houses of worship stood up and said, no, this is, this is a gross violation, because it was. However, it was too much deference to those in white coats, even from people in the houses of worship. So when I was at HHS, there was a guidance document that was issued that specified how houses of worship were to do communion, whether they could do it with a chalice, where they could pass around collection plates, hymnals, can they sing, uh, those uh, strategies on how to get around the Jewish Sabbath and its restrictions on electronics. Coming from the CDC, a document on how to possibly get around Sabbath restrictions. This went through without review from my office. I got involved and said, what are we doing here? What do you think you're doing? You're not theologians. And this is going to lead to tremendous religious liberty violations. We undid that 
that document. And if you see, and historically, which of the guidance documents came out, that was the one that actually looked like, if you do this, consider this as a best practice to inform the public as to what the risks are and let people make their own decisions. But that's not where it ended. When it came to religious exemptions to the vaccine, we had the same issue, that the public health authorities saying you should do this and weighing religious interests versus secular interests. And too many times, especially businesses, uh, were giving short shrift to religious beliefs, saying it would somehow cover for some other thing. Moving on to issues now that we're getting out of COVID, hopefully, that I see on the horizon, people in white coats are saying it is part of Health and Human Services to fund and promote abortion. It's good for a woman's health, and doctors have to be required to perform it. People have to be required to pay for it in the name of health. In the Trump administration, we were very clear that abortion is not health care. That's an issue of deep debate right now. It's going to be a bigger issue once Roe versus Wade gets, God willing, overturned but right around June. The fight is going to shift to then sh trying to force people to pay for it in those states that don't prohibit it, and there was going to be a big fight at the federal level to see if the federal government could put some rational prohibitions in on abortion as well. The pushback is going to be health care, uh, and everybody must do it regardless of their religious beliefs on the question. And the final point is with gender identity. This is the, the height of the culture war on this issue right now. And the battle lines have been drawn on the question of children. Will they be required, again, on the advice of people with white coats, to take puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones that lead to sterilization? Can the state come in and say no? Do parents have a right to say no? Must religious hospitals perform these surgeries and uh, treatments? Or will they have a religious freedom uh, right to say no? And again, is everybody gonna be, everyone going to be required to pay for it, regardless of their religious beliefs? I recommend to you a story of Abby Martinez, a mother of a daughter whose name is Yeli. It's at the Heritage's website. She told her story where her daughter was taken away from her because people in white coats, in this case, Department of uh, Child and Protective Services in California, thought it'd be better if her daughter was put on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. She lost custody, was separated from her daughter, and the doctor said it was to save Yaley's life. Right? That's often something you're going to hear on the issue of transgenderism in kids. Right? That's not what happened. Her underlying depression was not treated, and Yaley ended up walking in front of a train and taking her own life, having followed all the advice of people in white coats, and having lost the custody of her mom, who was not even allowed to talk about God to her daughter when she was going through this because of the people in the white coat. Thank you, Mr. Severino. Uh, Commissioner Lucas. Thank you, and I'm so delighted to be here. Um, this really is a very important and timely conference. And religious liberty, one of our first freedoms, and as such, one of the under essential underpinnings of our society. During my time in the EEOC, religious discrimination has been a major focus for me, and it's, hope, it's my hope to make religious liberty a significant uh, focus during my tenure there. I want to spend my sort of opening statement giving a little necessary framing and context, um, both from my talk as well as 
for us thinking about this, about ways government protects or does not protect religious liberty. Um, the structure of this EEOC is also necessary to talk about. So I'm in the strange position of being one of the very few remaining Trump appointees still in the federal government and therefore the rare uh, conservative in the current executive branch. In fact, perhaps stranger still, as some of you may know, the EEOC still has a Republican majority, um, although that's likely ending this year with the expiration of the term of former chair, current commissioner Janet Dillon. And even during the Republican majority period, sort of holdover into the Biden administration, the agency has had a Democrat chair since President Biden's inauguration. This is important to keep in mind when we think about some of the actions the agency has or has not taken and where it may be going um, in the near future around religious liberty and intersecting or conflicting issues. Um, in addition, it's important to note that the EOC is in theory a bipartisan multi-member agency uh, and in theory, an independent agency. So as a single commissioner, I can't speak on behalf of the commission by myself. On the other hand, as a Republican commissioner who one might say is in but not of the Biden administration, I have the latitude to disagree with the administration and even the Democrat chair of my agency. And indeed, I have done so and continue to um, plan on doing so when necessary. I also wanted to note that I'm sure there's going to be a lot of discussions today about religious liberty as a constitutional right and on government encroachment on religious liberty. But I did want to point out that religious freedom is technically protected both from the government via the First Amendment, as well as protected by the government, including via the EEOC's enforcement of Title VII, which includes religion as a protected base. There's obviously other government agencies, like uh, Roger mentioned, that also protect religious liberty as well. Uh, but I'll focus mostly on the EEOC because that's the, the place I know. Uh, it's fair to acknowledge that the EEOC is not charged with directly upholding the constitutional right to free exercise, rather protecting against private discrimination uh, in employment under Title VII. But I still view the latter task as critically connected to ensuring the constitutional rights are not effectively gutted. That's because I believe that the fastest way to ensure that you can suppress a religious believer's ability to live out their faith in the marketplace and participate fully in society, the fastest way to encourage people to discard their beliefs or retreat to isolated silos is to condition people's livelihoods on hiding or denying or failing to live out their religious beliefs in the workplace. I also think that it's critical for this discussion today to acknowledge that the threat to religious liberty does not just come from government regulation or actions, but also significantly from the public square, from society and the private sector. Separate and apart from anything that the government does, I am deeply concerned that today religious liberty has become a disfavored or second-class right in many areas of our society and culture. And this increasingly negative sentiment or view of religious liberty in society broadly means that when we talk about notable recent encroachments on religious liberty, sometimes it's been the private sector charging ahead of the government. Other times the private sector follows the government's direct actions, and still other times the private sector willingly moves in the direction that the government wishes it to or pressures it to, absolving the government of the need to as fully engage in direct government action. With my limited time remaining, I want to focus on sort of an application of some of these points, and that's religious accommodation requests from uh, COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Vaccine mandates, especially their implementation process, has been a major area of substantial encroachment on religious liberty in the employment space. And from my perspective, that's come equally from private corporations and the White House, 
uh, in contravention of long-standing federal employment law and EEOC guidance and enforcement in this space. I'm sure many of you are familiar that as a baseline, you have a right to a religious accommodation, so long as it's reasonable and does not pose an undue hardship in the employment space. And the, what you may not be aware of is the EEOC actually has a pretty long track record of bringing religious accommodation cases. It's actually brought almost 60 in the last decade, and five of which involved pre-COVID vaccine policies. Many of you also are probably aware of all of the vaccine mandates that are on the federal level from the Biden administration. But before even those federal mandates were announced, many large private employers implemented their own corporate mandatory vaccination policies, and many of them loudly and proudly announced ways that they were going to try to find ways to find someone's religious belief insincere so that they could defeat those. That was the express intent, and there were many newspaper articles sort of trumpeting, this is the way to have 10 or 20 invasive questions to ensure that you can kind of gotcha on someone. Um, other companies followed the government's lead once the federal mandates were put out, even though federal challenges were inevitable to those federal mandates. Um, and even as the mandates were stayed from the federal level, many private companies have maintained their corporate policies. They've doubled down. Um, from my seat, it seems that many employers, like, like I previewed, really struggled and ran afoul of Title VII as they uh, executed these vaccine policies. Uh, and that's led to thousands of EEOC charges, which the agency has publicly acknowledged in other forums, um, record highs relating to religious accommodation requests arising from va mandatory vaccination policies. So I'd be very surprised if the EEOC doesn't actually end up being active in this space. Obviously, I can't preview anything uh, that might come before me, but given longstanding policies and practices, it'd be really surprising. That said, we are about to have a change in, in the administration of who controls the EEOC. We also have the Biden administration writ large, the White House, which has not had a good uh, track record in terms of religious liberty and particularly with respect to the federal employee mandate. Um, in general, I found that to be exceptionally bad precedent set setting, which many <clears throat> private employers followed or were encouraged to follow um, what I thought were often um, significant violations of, of Title VII. So uh, we'll see where things develop. Um, but that's one application. Uh, gender identity certainly will be another, and I'm looking forward to continuing the discussion for the rest of the panel. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Mr. Bowman. Thank you, Judge. Uh, thank you to the Gray Center and EPPC for sponsoring this discussion. I want to focus my remarks on the intersection of two seemingly unrelated areas of law, religious liberty and administrative law. In December 2020, at Alliance Defending Freedom, we created what we're calling the Regulatory Practice Team, and we're expanding that team because we realize that the broadening reach of the administrative state both poses increasing and fundamental threats to religious liberty, but it also gives advocates of religious liberty a broader set of tools to defend against those threats. The religious liberty and so-called culture war issues present a perfect storm of circumstances where the administrative state agencies can impose an agenda of overreach and violate people's everyday freedoms. Congress is unable to legislate on these matters, uh, typically unable to surpass the threshold in the Senate of 60 votes. Meanwhile, the political base of the current administration demands actions on these atoms, uh, items and demands action quickly. 
Now, seminal Supreme Court cases on free exercise of religion have generally concerned burdens created by legislative bodies. Think of Yoder and the state truancy law, or the Controlled Substances Act in Gonzalez versus Ocentro Spirita, or the city of Hialeah's law on sacrifice of chickens. Several of the cases have also dealt with the application of laws for employment benefits by boards, and so that dipped into the administrative state, but in particular circumstances applying uh, laws that are regularly applied. But in this century, religious liberty cases have increased in frequency and intensity based on an ever-increasing administrative state and the laws that it is essentially, uh, essentially legislating. So the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, came forth with its contraceptive and abortion pill mandate in 2011. And we saw that case go up and down to the Supreme Court through Hobby Lobby and Little Sisters of the Poor and dozens and dozens of lower court cases. But as the Supreme Court recognized in the summer of 2020, the, the act itself nowhere requires contraceptive coverage. Instead, it gave a sub-agency within HHS uh, what the court called virtually unbridled discretion to decide what must be covered. And then that discretion as exercised triggered penalties from the IRS, from the Department of Labor, and from state health insurance commissioners. COVID cases, as Roger observed, have similarly arisen, uh, not typically from legislation, but from state and municipal authorities exercising, in some cases apparently inventing, emergency powers with apparently perpetual time horizons for renewing these powers. And the major push of the Biden administration since literally the first day he was in office has been to command his agencies to expand the scope of federal laws. And one of the first executive orders that came out was interpreting literally every federal civil rights law and policy that prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex to require the agencies to apply those to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And I'll talk about a couple of examples of that uh, when I conclude my remarks. But these challenges also present new remedies that we typically haven't seen advocated or highlighted in your typical uh, religious liberty case that might make it to the Supreme Court. We have structural constitutional doctrines that are uh, suddenly implicated when an administrative agency is the source of a new regulation or an expansion of of statute as we saw in the OSHA 100 and more employer vaccine mandate case. Now, there were dozens of those cases filed. ADF filed four of those cases, including on behalf of seminaries who didn't want to have to fire faculty because they decided they didn't want to have the vaccine, which raised uh, issues concerning the ministerial exception. And we represented nonprofits and businesses as well. But the court resolved the issue on the major questions doctrine, and we were sure to be aware and active in representing those arguments in our briefs as well. The issue of delegation investing of power is also raised by by these questions. In the Little Sisters of the Poor contraceptive mandate case in 2020, Justice Thomas, writing for the majority, said, no party has pressed a constitutional challenge to the breadth of the delegation involved here, citing Gundy. Well, that might change soon as the Biden administration is planning, as they've announced, to repeal the exemptions to the contraceptive mandate. And the Administrative Procedure Act is uh, frequently trampled on by agencies that rush their 
culture war agendas out the door, often without even bothering with rulemaking. And we saw in the Department of Homeland Security versus Regents where Chief Justice Roberts applied rules that to an even a, apparently a completely discretionary action of the executive branch, those rules must still uh, involve the agency's consideration of relevant factors, of alternatives, and of reliance interests. And the Administrative Procedure Act's requirements of procedure that are required by law, including the rulemaking process, is a situation that's highlighted in the last case I'll mention, which is a case that we brought last year on behalf of College of the Ozarks. College of the Ozarks, a hard work university out there in southwestern Missouri, uh, is a devoutly Christian uh, university, and they are the, they're, they're the typical uh, school that you might imagine uh, in the Midwest. And Three weeks after President Biden's executive order on sexual orientation and gender identity, the Department of Housing and Urban Development decided to issue what it called a directive. And that directive said uh, sex discrimination under the Fair Housing Act, which was added in 1973, now prohibits gender identity discrimination. And what people often don't know is that uh, the Fair Housing Act doesn't require you to receive federal funding to be subject to it. Anyone who has dwellings that are uh, subject to the Fair Housing Act, with some very small exceptions, are, uh, have to not discriminate on the basis of sex. Now, what happens when you have college dorms at a devout religious school, and suddenly you're told, well, we have male and female dorms, but we have to assign students not only to different dorms, but even to different rooms based on their gender identity, not on their sex. Well, that's not something, frankly, that even the students who would go to a college like that would want, or many of them. So we brought a challenge in federal district court, and that challenge is now pending at the Eighth Circuit. But one of the main claims we're pushing on the challenge is that they didn't bother with rulemaking. There was no notice to the public before this expansion of the Fair Housing Act was announced. There were no public comments received. There was no rationale considering the alternatives or the implications of, of imposing this on religious schools. They just announced it. And in the announcement, they declared, well, this is, uh, this is something that even our, even our grantees were going to amend the grant agreements that we have with HUD grantees so that they have to comply with this. Now, the Department of Justice response in court is, there's nothing to see here. You can't sue us until after there's a complaint filed and you're subject to a year or two of discovery and questions and investigations and a finding of violation and you appeal through your administrative process. But that's not what the APA requires when it says that the public is entitled to procedures before agencies issue binding rules. So the Eighth Circuit uh, is considering that case. We argued it in November and we're waiting uh, for a ruling. Thank you, Mr. Bowman. Um, before I ask questions from the panel, I want to give you all an opportunity to, to respond to, to one another. I think there were a number of interesting ideas that were brought up here, and maybe, Mr. Severino, if could start with you. And I, I, I was intrigued particularly by um, Commissioner Lucas's point about the, the role of the private sector in the, um, in the pandemic and, and how a lot of the encroachments on religious liberty have not even been from government but from uh, the private sector. H how do you think about that? Um, and is there something yeah. that a new Congress, for instance, should do? Yeah, I think, I think it's exactly right. You mentioned the issue of religious accommodation on COVID. That's mostly in the private sector where we've seen the denials 
of people's religious liberty there. And that's a statutory right to be accommodated based on your religion. Uh, there is a gap in federal law. There is no cross-cutting Title VI type protection on the basis of religious discrimination. Right? Any program that receives federal funds, you can't discriminate on race, color, national origin, and all the other protected classes. There's not one that's cross-cutting for religion. That's a gap that think needs to be remedied. Private sector is one of the major threats to religious freedom, even though they don't have government power. But as they expand into more areas of life, as you see big tech essentially taking on government-type functions, you're going to see more of these difficult questions of, okay, what is, where is this tension and how is it going to be resolved when people's religious freedom is being violated? Uh, the, the COVID example is great because, I should say not great, but indicative, uh, because I actually appeared before a, a labor board defending a firefighter who was being treated poorly for having sought a religious accommodation to the vaccine mandate. Again, these were the people who were considered the heroes, our first responders in the throes of the beginning of the, of the COVID crisis. And now they're being vilified if they want to stand up for their religious freedom. And I made the arguments for it. Uh, and of course, you have to balance the, the purposes and, and the burdens, et cetera. They would hear none of it. It wouldn't matter if somebody had a uh, previous infection and had natural immunity. They did not care one whit about the science on that question. It was simply, why don't you take the vaccine? It's good for you. We don't care about your religion. It was as simple and as, as basic as that. And I, and I saw that firsthand. And these are people who are part of a, a labor relations board, which does have government power. Sure. Um, Commissioner Lucas, maybe uh, could you tell us uh, how, how you've thought about the um, the issue that Mr. Bowman pointed out of um, the Biden administration just kind of uh, sua sponte reinterpreting sex discrimination um, laws? Yeah, so that, you know, the EEOC unfortunately has a fair amount of examples of this too, lest you think I'm solely a EEOC apologist, um, although I do think there's a role uh, to, to protect religious liberty in the agency. Um, it's, it's gone the other way, too. So um, one example of that is uh, the application of Bostock. As many of you know, Bostock was a fairly limited holding. It explicitly stated in the majority opinion that it was not going to cover things like bathrooms or dress codes. Um, it certainly mentioned nothing about pronoun use. And despite that, um, last June, the chair of our agency on her own, without any commission vote, uh, issued a technical assistance guidance. Technical assistance posed to, is supposed to mean like a Q&A that essentially sums up previously voted on policy documents. Um, except in this case, it uh, purported to apply Bostock and said that now all of the things that Bostock did not actually cover were now the law of the land for all private sector employees. Um, that you could not discriminate based on gender identity, not just transgender status, um, with respect to things like bathrooms and dress codes, that the repeated use of uh, a pronoun different than an individual uh, requested or identified with could constitute harassment on the basis of gender identity, significant applications and extensions beyond what Bostic had done. And um, in my opinion, and in the opinion of my Republican colleagues, that went outside of what a limited technical assistance document should have done. There was no notice and comment, there was no rulemaking, and there was no commission vote. Um, unsurprisingly, that has been the subject of quite a few lawsuits. 
Um, but you know, that's an example there of just <laughs> unfettered issuing whatever she liked, despite the fact that um, you, in fact, had the capacity to engage in a rulemaking if you wanted to. It obviously would have turned out a little different, I think, if you had gone through a rulemaking. Um, hence the, the move towards uh, sort of one-off uh, views. And I think that that's what you're seeing in a lot in the government. It's where the government knows that it can't get th something through during the reasoned, appropriate manner, whether it's through agencies' internal processes or the APA, uh, issuing something just at the drop of a hat is an easier, simpler way to, to not deal with all of the more complicated consequences of, of taking the position that, uh, that the various government agencies have done. Um, Mr. Bowman, you kind of, I think you and Mr. Severino raised similar concerns. He talks about uh, too much deference to the man in, men in white coats. You talk about these, um, the emergency powers and, and uh, that we've seen government bodies uh, utilize over the last few years. I mean, I'll tell you, as a judge, I've struggled um, with uh, assertions of religious rights when you have the executive branch or the, uh, you know, the, the, the local authorities saying, but this is an emergency, this is a pandemic, people are going to die if we um, uh, grant these uh, religious exemptions. Um, how should how should courts weigh these uh, concerns and and um, wh why isn't it appropriate for courts to to defer, especially in the the early days of, uh, of a pandemic or uh, some other emergency, and say you know we really are not best placed to to evaluate the, um, these these concerns. We we should be deferring to to the executive branch. Well, thankfully, we're not in the early days of, of the pandemic, although they might come up with another one. But I think the Supreme Court has observed, a couple of points. The Supreme Court has observed that the Constitution is not waived in an emergency. And an emergency, those, those factors aren't trump cards. They play into the standard that applies in, in, a, in a particular circumstance. So under the Administrative Procedure Act, agency action can't be arbitrary or, or capricious. It has to consider significant issues. An emergency doesn't give an agency free reign to simply ignore uh, issues or ignore the rulemaking process or to issue things that are irrational. Uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't give the agency ability to exceed its statutory authority. That's what the Supreme Court decided in the OSHA case. And it... Uh, the, uh, the government can argue that under the compelling interest test of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or the First Amendment as applicable, uh, it has a compelling interest uh, and it, there's no less restrictive means of achieving that interest, but it still has the burden to do that, to show the evidence that that, that is the case. And, uh, Justice Scalia said in Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association that the government has to come up with compelling evidence to meet the compelling interest test. And so I think uh, what the government is often trying to do is, is, is wave a wand to get the court to pay no attention to the legal standards that, that it's actually subject to in these situations. And if I could add, just think back to World War II and Korematsu. Mm -hmm. We ended up interning Japanese-Americans uh, during an emergency. And the Supreme Court has been living that down ever since. So we have to be very, very careful to not lose sight of our fundamental rights. 
we actually issued a statement at the Office of Civil Rights saying that our civil rights laws are not suspended during the COVID pandemic. There was a question as to whether or not people with disabilities would be put at the end of a line in getting life-saving care. That was a, a real question we had to deal with and said an emergency does not excuse uh, or, or suspend our, our civil liberties and our civil rights. So there's always a temptation to do something now, to help people now. And we have to help them, but let's not lose sight about who we are as Americans. Right? Sure. Let's not lose our country in, in, while trying to save it. Uh, Commissioner, one of the most uh, electric moments of Ketanji Brown-Jackson's hearing was when she refused to define the term woman. Um, as various agencies are struggling to define terms that I think we all agreed upon a few years ago, uh, are, do you see new threats to religious freedom that, that citizens are going to face here? Yeah, I think that definitional terms are mostly centering around issues relating to gender identity and the further and further government agencies expand that term, the more you're going to bump into uh, religious rights. Um, it's perhaps one thing to say that a secular workplace uh, is not going to fire someone simply based on gender identity. It's quite a bit another thing to say that someone must use someone's proposed preferred pronouns or pronouns in a certain way, the more privacy interests you have, the harder it, it comes. And all of these things just sprawl out. Um, even concepts as basic as the idea of sex discrimination, just like sex, simply sex, not sex, sexual orientation or gender identity, how do we really understand any of that underpinning that previously um, motivated a lot of, of these laws? Uh, I, I think that to some degree the bottom starts dropping out the more you blur common terms. So I think that that is going to be increasingly uh, increasingly difficult. Um, you know, the agency protects multiple uh, rights and it always has to engage in some balancing, but the point is you have to balance. And if one uh, right becomes the trump card to everything, um, I would also say a novel right that isn't supported by the text of, of uh, Title VII, um, it, it, it becomes increasingly a, a threat. Yeah, can you tell us, kind of take us inside the commission, how do, how do you all balance these when, when you have rights that are arguably intentioned? Yeah, I mean, it's not just an LGBT thing. I, I'll point that out, right? It, you always could have um, some sort of, of tension. So consider this example. Um, what if you have a Muslim cab driver who has a religious objection to having any uh, dogs in their cab um, because of religious codes about cleanliness and, and ideas about, about dogs? And then you have a, you know, a disabled uh, passenger who has a dog as a service animal. How do you balance that? The company probably has obligations under public accommodation uh, to be able to accommodate someone who has a disability. They also have an obligation to balance uh, a religious uh, accommodation request. So um, it's going to be case by case, but I think the point is it needs to be a balancing. You can't automatically decide one right is going to trump everything, no matter what the particular set of the rights are. Um, so it's really fact-dependent, but I think what I try to always go back to is we're going to, we have to find some way to live in harmony in a pluralistic society, and there are multiple rights, and we can't just pick one. That said, to the extent that we're going to primacy anything, um, we do have to keep in mind that the religion is a constitutional right in addition to a statutory right. So that's something that I keep in mind as well. There, there's 
And I do think culturally we have come to a point in which religion is perceived as a second-class right. One might make the counter-argument that really it ought to be viewed as a first among the rights because it is one of our first freedoms. So, you know, that constitutional viewpoint, that sort of founding viewpoint is very much intention of where our culture currently is drifting, and that, I think, is making it harder and harder to balance these rights. Um, Mr. Bowman, the commissioner mentioned um, a few moments ago how in the uh, especially in the vaccine um, and, and masking context, we've seen um, employers or governments really pushing back on the, the kind of sincerely held religious b- belief uh, prong and, and kind of digging in there in a way that maybe you wouldn't typically see in, in a religious um, liberty uh, claim. Is that problematic? Um, and, you know, um, how do we handle... Um, more, uh, you know, kind of claims, religious uh, liberty claims that may seem more um, esoteric or or idiosyncratic Um, isn't, I mean, shouldn't shouldn't employers be making that requirement and and, and looking to strain out uh, kind of false assertions of religious uh, liberty? Well, the government has has said that it shouldn't be straining out religious liberty. And so on the, on the side of the courts, uh, the Supreme Court and lower courts have often said that it's not the government's job to decide. Uh, they can decide a modicum of sincerity of religion, but to decide whether your theological views are right or wrong it isn't their business. And I think by extension, when a, a law like Title VII or, or RIFRA says that your religious exercise is protected, in Title VII case applying to the private sector, uh, employers, it's not really their job to decide whether someone's religious belief is correct or not. Uh, they simply have to apply the, the uh, undue hardship test in that, in that circumstance. Uh, I'm not sure if that answers your question exactly. Sure. Okay. Um, Mr. Severino, do you think that... Um, these religious exemptions that we were we were seeing. I mean, a did were we typically seeing religious exemptions for masking for for vaccines? And what's your take on how illusory these were? Well, I had raised the issue of vaccines and aborted fetal cells during Operation Warp Speed with Dr. Collins and Nancy Messina, and said this is going to be an issue unless you create an alternative vaccine there will be many people who will not be able to take it even though they want to because of the link to abortion. And it is undisputed that the current vaccines we have on the market were either derived from or tested on aborted fetal cell lines. Um, That's a problem. And a lot of businesses have, again, become these junior varsity theologians. And I've seen actual uh, letters from these businesses quizzing their employees. They say, okay, you say you can't take this uh, vaccine because of its link to abortion. What about aspirin? What about this? What about that? Apparently, they logged on to Google to try to find out, has there been any other link to abortion and any other drugs? And some have been tested long after approval by some scientists. I'm going to use these aborted fetal cells, see what happens with aspirin. And trying to make these trap questions, not because... Uh, they actually care about the religious beliefs or the truth of the matter is because they, they believe that it is uh, not worthy of protection. 
and, and a business uh, employer, your boss, should not be judging whose religious beliefs are worthy of protection or not, whether they're idiosyncratic or not. Uh, same thing happened with the Little Sisters of the Poor when the federal government said, no, this really isn't burdening your religious belief when you're, you're helping provide contraceptives to fellow nuns, because you're not really providing it. Of course you are. It's, 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 you cannot stand and be a, 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 a theologian, especially not your boss, right? And we've seen a lot of that, and that, that has to stop. Um, and, may, and maybe, Andrew, if you could mention, what do you think of the future of, of the Hardison undue hardship test? Because that's where a lot of this problem is coming from, if you don't mind me. No, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want, thanks. Yeah, so Hardison uh, establishes that undue hardship in the Title VII, the religious accommodation, is a substantially lower burden than in the uh, ADA case. So it's de minimis versus a significant hardship. Now, practically how that plays out in the courts varies, but regardless, it's, from my opinion, and I think quite a few people's opinion, uh, Hardison is not textually supported by Title VII. And as a result, we've seen multiple cert petitions attempting. There's always been, it seems, vehicle problems, but I do think that we have seen a number of, of justices, probably a majority, that be willing to revisit the hardest in the standard. So if you have that happen, you may have a change to the undue hardship standard. Um, that being said, I think you've already seen courts signaling that even under the undue hardship status uh, standard that you have right now, that's not necessarily going to pose a problem to a number of plaintiffs um, in religious accommodation cases because what they're going to look at, um, at least what I've been seeing them looking at, is how did the employer handle the pre-vaccine phase of the pandemic, in which they told their employees that it was perfectly safe for them to work in person, taking other precautions. And that prior behavior will be held against them when they try to say now in a vaccine context, you know, suddenly it'd be an undue hardship to let you work in person. So I don't know whether or not Hardison is actually going to be as material for the current stage, but I do think just in general, um, it has historically posed a problem for many people in, in, in establishing religious accommodation requests. That being said, I'd, I'd always would rather people be in the undue hardship phase of things than playing theologian in the yeah. first prong of the analysis. That's where businesses and the government, frankly, um, in terms of the federal employee mandate has really screwed up. Hmm. Um, Matt, I wanna, uh switch gears slightly. Um, in uh, National Federation of Independent Businesses, the Supreme Court stayed OSHA's corporate vaccine mandate because it uh, exceeded OSHA's statutory authority. Um, will that doctrine be relevant in free exercise cases, do you think? I think it will. And in a way, that was already a free exercise case, as we mentioned, because that 100-plus employee mandate applied to nonprofits and religious organizations. And seminaries, that, for example, that we represented. But it, in the situation we've already mentioned, the expansion of civil rights laws and the definition of sex discrimination, there's going to be uh, a major questions doctrine question raised about whether the agencies are going far beyond their statutory authority in creating new categories of non-discrimination. And a related doctrine, I think, uh, will be the clear notice doctrine. Because a lot of these statutes that the administrative state is expanding are funding clause, spending clause statutes. Uh, they're applicable to states. And states, in 1972, when they accepted funding that Title IX governed, uh, were, did they have clear notice at the time that, well, actually, you're prohibiting, uh, you're not allowed to engage in sexual orientation and gender identity <laughs> discrimination? 
I think those are serious claims that not only the state attorneys general's offices are, go, are likely to raise and are already raising in litigation, but that private parties can raise as well. Uh, Justice Kennedy said that the clear notice doctrines affect private persons as well. So I think these, I think these doctrines are going to be relevant, as, as will the non-delegation doctrine. Um, I want to ask you to uh, circle back to something Roger said at the very um, outset about the potential of a, a post-Roe world where you'll have um, states and federal government looking to, to pay for abortions and, and kind of a, a new era of, of regulations uh, um, across the, the levels of government. Um, do, you, do you agree that's coming down the, the pike here, and, and is that problematic? I think the Attorney General and HHS have already told us that. So when uh, General Garland brought his own lawsuit against the Texas uh, pro-life bill, uh, he said in the lawsuit, uh, states can't outlaw abortion because we as a federal government uh, are requiring them to make it available in various circumstances. We're requiring uh, enrollees in Medicaid to be able to have access to abortion. We're requiring unaccompanied alien children who we have in custody who came across the border pregnant and were captured uh, by Border Patrol, and we have in shelters, uh, we, the Biden administration, uh, drive them to abortion clinics. And if there aren't abortion clinics, we can't drive them there. Uh, and, and then Secretary Becerra has set up a reproductive uh, health task force, precisely uh, in case that if they lose Dobbs, uh, what federal levels, levers of administrative power, not congressional uh, legislation, can they impose uh, to pressure and combat uh, states that are protecting the uh, unborn children. Now, those are going to implicate religious liberty concerns as well, uh, because as we saw the HHS do in the last year, they uh, backed off uh, from telling California that they have to comply with the Weldon Amendment, which is a religious uh, liberty and, and moral uh, uh, liberty law that says you can't force, for example, the, the Guadalupanas nuns to have abortion in their health, health plan or Skyline uh, Wesleyan Church, who we represent. And they backed off from uh, a, a complaint that a private hospital receiving HHS funds was illegally forcing healthcare personnel to participate in abortions. So the, the conscience and the, and the pro-life issues are, are overlapping here, but the Biden administration has made it very clear what they're going to do if they lose jobs. Yeah, and can I follow up on uh, sure. the abortion rights issue? So um, from the employee side of things, I think you also have to consider that the more you have um, employment that might require a religious employee who's pro-life to engage in abortion services or perhaps gender identity-related health care services, um, that has put a lot of religious believers in uh, a, a, a difficult position but so sort of going on my theme of sometimes the government can actually provide some protections here. I think uh, many of you are aware of, of Roger's um, wonderful work at HHS on conscience side, uh, medical conscience related rights. But I did want to flag that um, religious accommodation law under employment law squarely within the EUC also provides a vehicle. So um, those types of employees do have a right to request a religious accommodation to not engage in that kind of behavior. It's not just a medical conscience right. So um, I do think that um, we have to both sort of simultaneously push back against government access where it has happened or has gone outside of appropriate regulations. But where we have 
something that actually could be useful or beneficial protecting religious liberty within the government. We should use all of those levers. Um, they're there. Congress passed those laws um, and set up those structures. So um, I'm in, enthusiastic about trying to educate people that, that they're <laughs> use government for good as much as possible, as well as criticize it when it has gone um, uh, in, the, in the negative direction. Yeah, and there, there is a federal potential solution to many of these issues. It's the Conscience Protection Act, which President Trump had vowed to sign. Mm. And that would create a private right of action so that that nurse who was forced to assist in abortion and the Guadalupana sisters would be able to sue on their own to make sure they're not uh, violating their own conscience. Right now, it's up to the administrative agencies. It's in their hands to decide. Right? We, got, we, we saw California with a $200 million disallowance in Medicaid. It was Javier Becerra who we held as the, the bad actor um, in the, the forced abortion insurance that Matt mentioned. And now Javier Becerra is the secretary of HHS, and he got rid of it. Right? We need a private right of action to be able to deal with these issues. You have a private right of action in, in Title, VII, Title VII, but you do have to go through the administrative process first, and obviously um, that can slow things down. I want to open it up to questions from the audience here in just a minute. Before I do, um, uh, Roger, kind of following up on your, your last uh, point about uh, pending legislation or, or proposed legislation in the Trump administration, um, obviously a lot of D.C. talking heads are suggesting that one or both houses of Congress will uh, flip later this year. Um, if they do... Um, what types of bills would you expect to see um, uh, relating to religious liberty uh, coming down the pike? Okay, so currently the administration is trying to strip the, and the, the current composition of Congress, trying to strip all the conscious protections in the Weldon Amendment, the Church Amendment, the Hyde Amendment, funding of abortion and coerced performance of it. I would expect the opposite to happen if, if the, the power flips. You'll have the Conscience Protection Act be put forward. And the big question is, what happens after Roe v. Wade gets put into the dustbin of history, right? Congress uh, has a role, and using whatever constitutional powers available to it, it should step forward to protect unborn human life to the maximal extent possible. And that, of course, will have tremendous implications for conscience rights as well. Um, so there, we're going to see, I think, a, a big change, because that's going to change the, the whole terms of the debate, right? Because... The conscience issues have come up uh, almost as an after effect of Roe v. Wade in many ways, right? It's just like the Little Sisters of the Poor issue came up only because it was this giant thing called Obamacare that got out of control. So once the, the elephant gets put back in its cage, uh, then we're going to see a whole, a whole new landscape. How it's going to shake out is going to be very interesting to see, but it'll be very encouraging. And I hope a, a, a better Congress will protect life and conscience and religious freedom. All right, with that, I'd uh, love to hear any questions from the audience. And I'll just remind you, questions end with a question mark at the end. Yes, ma'am. I think we got a microphone here. Thanks. Hi, my name is Christine Pratt. Um, I've noticed as a conservative that a lot of conservative-minded members of the public are slow to appreciate the opportunities to engage with the federal government through things like notice and public comment. Um, and sometimes I hear the objection that why should I, you know, uh, write a public comment to a federal agency? They're not going to listen to me. 
And so my question is, what's your best advice in interacting with people on that level to say why we should engage, why we should get individuals, but also organizations to write these comments? And if there's any other way other than public comments that you would recommend of uh, civic engagement as well. Great question. Roger, do you want to start off on that one? Sure. <clears throat> it's a little known secret that the way we are governed today is by agencies. Nobody really knows that that's really how we're governed. People in this room probably do, but just the general public. It's not what the founders envisioned, and people need to be educated on that <laughs> fact, that your best way of influencing your government now is to do things like notice and comment. It's use it or lose it. The agencies are required <coughs> to respond to your comments. We received hundreds of thousands in the rulemaking rules we were doing. We had to read them all and respond to them. That's your chance. If you don't raise the argument, they are essentially waived. And then if there's an issue with the rule and it's finalized, you had your chance. You can't sue on certain bases. Now, if it's a constitutional violation, you could always sue on that. But on the merits, people need to get it involved because this is how the rules are going to impact your daily lives. Uh, not through a big statute, but a bureaucrat deciding how to interfere with your daily living. Yeah, I agree. It is, it is very important. Um, and, it, and to the extent that you have a changeover in composition of an agency's control between administrations, and this is something sort of looking forward to the extent that you might have... Um, a, either shifts as various people come in and out of government based on terms expiring during the Biden administration, or if we have another presidential administration, um, you can really constrain the ability of someone new to be able to change positions in a good or bad way based on what questions and comments are or are not submitted. So to the extent that um, someone comes in more in favor of religious liberty and would like to pivot from what had gone out to notice and comment. If you don't have a comment, you can't really pivot unless you want to completely put it back out for public comment, which sometimes is not actually feasible. So um, that's a little in the weeds in terms of how the procedure is, but the takeaway is it really does matter to put out a comment. Um, also, just uh, calling, emailing, and visiting uh, agencies as they increasingly open um, it's important to hear from stakeholders in, in a variety of ways. Uh, it makes it harder for people to ignore that these are real issues. And it can be helpful to the extent you have someone who is sympathetic to religious liberties to be able to point to someone other than themselves and say, no, this actually matters. And I hear from people who are stakeholders or constituents or whatever um, that this matters. And I'll give you a, an example. HHS issued a regulation that said nothing about sexual orientation discrimination, they received seven comments during a comment period, and then they added sexual orientation, non-discrimination in a grant rule based on those seven comments and said, because it's not, it's not controversial, there was nothing controversial in the comments about this issue, and then they impose it, right? So you got to speak up on these Because things. there was no counter comments, I'm there assuming. No it was all in one, in one yeah. side. Mm -hmm. yeah, the last thing I'll add is that you actually have three opportunities to comment on a a typical uh, proposed rulemaking because the Office of Management and Budget at the White House has its own separate meeting and uh, comment process that you can utilize both before the proposed rule is issued and before the final rule is issued. So uh, use all three. Great. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, we'll get a mic to you here. 
Thank you. Um, my question is for Roger. Um, you mentioned there's a gap in federal law, I think, related to, you said there's no counterpart for Title VI for religious protections. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So we have the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which prohibits the federal government from substantially burdening somebody's religion. There's nothing equivalent on private parties, the federal law. Um, Title VI says you cannot discriminate against people on the basis of race, sex, and national or race, color, national origin if you receive federal funds. We're not funding racists as a federal government. Well, we shouldn't be funding religious bigots either. There is no law that actually says uh, cross-cutting among federal programs that you can't discriminate on the basis of religion. It's, it's rather surprising that, it, that there is no such thing. So that should be something on Congress's agenda because it is a major gap and we've seen it grow with COVID and all these other violations we, we've been talking about. It's only going to get worse when private actors are doing this and the federal government should not be funding any sort of bigoted behavior uh, and religion shouldn't somehow not be a part of that. And let me give you an example of that because we've talked a lot about COVID. We've talked about some things that are more just in the Christian sphere of things, but another application of that is anti-Semitism, which we've seen quite a bit of in the education space. But there's no straight up, because of the, the gap in Title VI, it can be difficult to challenge anti-Semitism in a college that's receiving federal funding. Now, there's ways to shoehorn it into different bases, national origin, um, race, but it's not as clean and easy as if you had a protection um, against religious discrimination for that. Another application point. Yes, sir. If I may, Your Honor, ignore your comment in that question. <laughs> <laughs> Be careful. The omission of religion in Title VI was a religious liberty decision taken in 1964 at the behest of the Catholic Conference, which believed correctly that had religion been included, it would not be able to continue the practice of preferring Catholics for admission to Catholic nursing homes. And the Jewish community, which is affected in the anti-Semitism area, has so far resisted calls to add religion precisely because it would put all funding of religious institutions that have any sort of preference. Remembering there's an effect test as well under Title VI. It would have a devastating effect on funding. If you look at all current church-state litigation involving any funding, one of the claims that the opponents of religious liberty are making is that you're taking government funds and discriminating. If you add religion to Title VI, it's a quick fix for some problems, and it would be devastating in many other areas. And again, it's worth remembering this is a religious liberty-based omission. So I'll, I'll respond by that. The Title VII has successfully handled that by having specific carve-outs to, pr to provide for um, religious discrimination when you're talking about a religious employer, and then they can prefer someone who follows their own religious beliefs, practices, and observances. So I do think there's some um, workarounds on that, but it is a good note um, for people to be considering if yeah. they try to it's, fix that. It's a drafting question. I don't, I don't think it's a question of principle. Um, I, I said religious bigotry shouldn't be funded. A Jewish orphanage uh, looking for Jewish parents to try to certify as, as fit families is not religious bigotry, right? We're talking about the things we saw in Fulton, in Masterpiece Cake Shop, in 303 Creative. Those sorts of cases is what I'm talking about, the animosity towards religion, whereas giving preferences on religious grounds um, for religious reasons 
Catholic Church hiring only Catholics as priests. That, that is not the discrimination I'm talking about, and that's just a drafting issue. Thank you. Any other questions? All right. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Matt. Did you want to have another one? Sorry to double dip. Um, my question is for Matt now. Um, you mentioned you've seen religious liberty threats coming from federal agencies. Have you seen any counterpart at the state administrative agency level? And do you, do you have any specific concerns about that just because the police power is more broad? Yes, and I think that, that is a good point. So certainly in the midst of COVID, that's the most recent example. Uh, we sued, not a state, but uh, sued the mayor of D.C. for uh, requiring masks uh, on religious school students. And a similar lawsuit was filed in Michigan. It's pending at the Sixth Circuit. Uh, now, notably, in the, uh, in the Michigan context, the Michigan Supreme Court struck down a previous uh, COVID uh, issuance from the governor on delegation doctrine grounds under the state constitution. So while I think there are uh, significant obstacles uh, to bringing challenges to state administrative mandates that burden religion, there also might be opportunities under state constitutional and statutory and administrative procedure law, or in, in the case of D.C., under the D.C. Administrative Procedure Act, to challenge some of these uh, burdens on religion uh, under administrative uh, law doctrines. All right. Um, I'll wrap up with a, a question i love to hear from each of you as we're coming out of the pandemic where we really had, uh, as I said, uh, unprecedented um, challenges to religious liberty. I think we also had some um, really uh, very encouraging uh, case law made protecting religious liberty. I'd be interested whether you are kind of coming out feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the, um, the religious uh, freedoms rights in the years ahead. Wanna I, I feel good about it. It's been a long win streak at the Supreme Court on religious freedom. The Beckett Fund, ADF, First Liberty have done amazing work. Uh, COVID, I'm a little worried. We haven't, we haven't seen the religious exemption case at the court yet, and they've, they've punted on it several times. Hopefully, it, they'll take it and, and go the right way. But generally speaking, I think Employment Division versus Smith is on life support. And it's only a matter of time before I think it, it goes. And that will be great for religious freedom. Um, I think the, 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 the future is bright when it comes to it. You know, some of the bigger questions, I did not like Bostock. But I'm hopeful Gorsuch will be able to do, fix the issue when it comes to religious freedom at least. I think it's it's a mixed bag. Um, I I am remain deeply concerned that there has just been a widespread cultural cultural amount of acceptance of dismissing religious concerns, and that uh, a lot of businesses have just gotten very comfortable with receiving a lot of religious accommodation requests and denying them. Um, We'll see whether or not there's course corrections on that. But I, I worry about that backdrop uh, in our culture. And even if we have good decisions at, at, uh, you know, at, at the circuit court or Supreme Court level, you need to also win the hearts and minds of the population. Um, on the other hand, to the extent that I'm optimistic about the population, I do think that COVID has been a perfect example, sadly, of... You know, some of the words that I, I said in my opening, I've been talking about for a while, this idea that if you condition someone's livelihood on 
altering their beliefs, you can really suppress some people. You can really um, stick it to them. I think that that was harder for people to see and understand until they saw what happened in COVID and the dilemma it put a lot of people in. And I think that that has been a wake-up call for a lot of people and hopefully an increased understanding of their rights. So to the extent that that has happened, I am encouraged, but I, I am, I'm worried uh, about the, sort of the cultural sentiment behind all of this. Yeah, and those, those cultural sentiments also make me hopeful. Uh, I think we've seen people, uh, separate and apart from the anti-branding of religious liberty, we've seen people get sick and tired of the government uh, telling them how to live their lives. And it's easy to be depressed about the culture when you live in D.C., but in the rest of America, uh, when you look at what happened with the uprising of parents in so many locations uh, against the, the dominance of their local school boards, when you see even the Canadian truckers protest, when you see movements like this, I think you have an opportunity where people are saying, we're not going to be uh, told what to do by government bureaucrats anymore. And so uh, that combined with many of the wonderful judges that President Trump appointed, President Company included, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom is very bullish on uh, administrative law remedies for religious liberty violations. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll ask you to join me in thanking our wonderful panel.